It's a grand old flag, it's a high-flying flag, it's the emblem for me and for you. It's the emblem of the team we love, the team of the red and the blue. Every heart beats true for the red and the blue, and we sing this song to you. Welcome, everybody, to uh, Series 2 of uh, the Brookie and Berger podcast. Welcome, Darren Burgess. Cheers, Brookie. Good to be here. Different intro. question, uh, how many times have you sung that song in the last uh, two weeks? Honestly, I reckon it's probably in the... There was about 20 in four days. Um, in fact, there'd be more than that. There'd probably be about 40. Yeah, I could ask you how many did you sing when you were sober, but that yeah. would be a very low number probably. But uh, welcome, everyone. Um, we've got the, a bit of a Melbourne theme today because, uh, well, obviously they've uh, just won the AFL Premiership, the first time in 57 long years. And... Um, Really, Darren is our guest today because, um, uh, as many people know, Darren has been the high performance manager at Melbourne for the last two seasons and um, is instrumental in the uh, in the premiership. And uh, we're going to basically, over the next uh, hour or so, take you through the, the high performance story of Melbourne, really, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, I think it's fair to say... We, we weren't going to do a second series as well, no. and, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we were sort of both pretty busy, and and uh, yeah, but we, we had some really good feedback, and um, thought that we there was a sort of a, a gap in the market, I guess, of high performance podcasts talking about the sort of things that we're going to talk about, which is not necessarily how to fix a hammy or how to you know get players fit or you know how to treat injuries. It's more about some of the things around the scene and the difficult conversations that you have and um, uh, perhaps leadership and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to some pretty cool podcasts, uh, pre- pretty cool guests, sorry, coming up. Yeah, we've got a lot, lot of uh, interesting guests uh, lined up over the next few weeks. But uh, you're our guest today, Birdo. <laughs> uh, now, I should uh, declare a, 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 an interest here in that I did play have a small role at uh, Melbourne this year as a sort of we'll a medical talk about that consultant. For sure. But yeah. um, so uh, I'll, I'll state that uh, up front. So I... What it did enable me to do is be a fairly close observer of what happened at, at the football club over the last couple of years. But look, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go back. Um, two years ago now, almost exactly two years ago, uh, you were appointed what the, to the term is a high-performance manager at, uh, at the Melbourne Football Club. Now, do you just want to explain what, what a high-performance manager does? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll... I guess the role of the high performance manager is to tie all aspects of performance uh, together and provide um, a direction that that everybody should point towards and head towards to liaise with the senior coach, um, which might be the I don't know, the head coach in NFL or the manager in 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 soccer football. Um, and and have everybody so whether that's dietitians, doctors, physios, podiatrists, sports scientists, strength psychologists, performance analysis, performance analysts, uh, all pointing in that direction. And I guess it's the job uh, that I was employed initially to do in Melbourne is to have those people all aligned in their thinking and um, supporting Simon Goodwin, the head coach's vision for the team. So you're obviously leading a large team who are basically directly reporting to you. I mean, as you said, you've got, uh, let's go through the numbers at Melbourne. You've got a couple of docs or two and a half, you count me, um, three physios, um, a sports, well, you, you take us through uh, your sports science team and so on. Yeah, uh, at the time uh, when I was appointed, two sports scientists, um, uh, a head of strength conditioning and sports scientists and sports science, um, a head strength coach, um, uh, dietitian, and uh, I was also uh, put in charge of four analysts, um, so statistician, analyst, whatever term you want to you yeah. want to use. And then there was obviously the AFL women's, and then the the Casey, which is sort of like the reserves, if you like, for those yep. who are listening. And a team elsewhere. of massage therapists as well. Massage uh, therapists, consultants. You know, we used Biomex, we used uh, big group. podiatrists. So yeah, it's a large big group. team of professionals that you need to coordinate and. Uh, have them all 
pulling in the same direction. Sure. Okay. So you arrived, uh, I think it's fair to say, you had your choice of a number of different AFL clubs after you came back to Australia. What made you choose Melbourne? Um, yeah, there was there was a, a two really attractive uh, overseas options. One certainly financially would have set me up for life, but in the headspace that I was in following the Arsenal stuff, which we've, which we've spoken about, I wasn't really, um, I was still a bit... Uh, uh, battle scarred, we'll call it, um, from from what happened there. So, um, the two biggest factors in coming to Melbourne were Simon Goodwin and Greg Stafford, um, unashamedly. Um, Simon Goodwin, the head coach, we just hit it off straight away. I knew that we were going to get along. We had great alignment um, in our thinking. And Greg Stafford uh, is the forwards coach at Melbourne, and was uh, is one of my best mates and. We have had a relationship going since he was a player at the Swans, lasting 25 years. Mm. And so the chance to work with him was um, was just fantastic. So uh, they were honestly the main reasons, as well as I actually got an uh, independent person to do a list analysis of uh, a few of the clubs that I was speaking to. And he certainly painted a, a really good picture of where Melbourne was at, even though they'd come second last the previous year. Um, he sort of said, "No, if if they get there, you know, everyone in alignment, um, they could they could go places." So, well, he was right. <laughs> yeah. um, smart guy. Um, so yeah, so you arrived at the club as you said. They'd just finished second last. Uh, they'd had a good year the, the previous year. They'd, yep. they'd uh, made the preliminary final. Had a horrible year in uh, two thousand and nineteen. Yep. So you've arrived after the at the end of the two thousand nineteen season. And what what did you observe, or what did you, what was your sort of you know feeling when you arrived and you'd been there a little while and, and had a chance to talk to people and look at what was happening and look at the programs and so on. I mean, uh, what what was your feeling on uh, on what? Uh, where they were at? Well, I guess on the positive side, um, so I'd arrived on the back of Dave Misson, who's a very experienced high-performance manager, and he'd done a great job, uh, really. He'd taken the club through some pretty tumultuous times and, and as you said, took them to a prelim final. Um, but through uh, him and, uh, I guess, the football director, Josh Marnie, they'd made some changes to the staff, so I was able to then bring in some people that I knew that we'll talk about, um, uh, so that was a real positive that I was able to come in with three people in particular um, uh, that that I've really wanted to work with. And, and that was um, a, an interview process. It wasn't me saying, I want this person, this person, this person. Um, it was, uh, we put it to interview and I was able to be part of that whole process. So that was really positive. Um, but they were a... Um, They'd experienced a lot of injuries the year before, a lot. I think there was something like 17 off-season surgeries um, that they'd had, which is just astronomical. Like, it's a list of 43. So to have 17 of them going for surgery means that their training consistency was enormously interrupted. And uh, Simon Goodwin, who we'll just call Goody because that's what everyone knows him as, um, just didn't, was never able to get the same team uh, on the park at any time. So uh, they were, of course, never going to be successful when there were so many injuries. So so the the, the, the high performance group, medical group, um, and the players were a bit disjointed. I don't think there was a lot of trust um, in each other. Um, and and then there was the coaching group who was sort of really separate from um, uh, from the, the high performance and uh, medical group as well. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there was a lot of just second guessing, I think. Yeah. So I guess in a way, you know, there was a lot of potential for for improvement that must have excited you at the time. Uh, very much so, very much so, and, and that is a testament to the staff that was already there because mm. they did lay some pretty good groundwork. Yeah. So what were the sort of first things you 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 know wanted to do or put in place to uh, turn things around? Yeah, I guess one of the uh, and I remember it clear as a bell, and and Alan Richardson came on board. He was an experienced senior coach, and he came on as a coaching director, and myself. And Richo and Goody were in a meeting with the other coaches and uh, we went through the list and from the get-go, the coaching group were talking about the physical deficiencies of players. And uh, it was either Richo or Goody got up and said, no, 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 we are here to talk about the coaching and the culture. Darren and his team, will take care of the physical. Let's never, ever question that again. 
I don't want to ever say so-and-so looks fat, how so-and-so skin folds, why is he taking an extra week out? So immediately there was a trust and respect that the high performance and medical team will do their job and the coaching group will do their job. And to his word, Goody never questioned, not once did he ever say. And for those who in similar positions listening, can you imagine never having a coach ever come up to you during two years of training and never say, why is Peter Bruckner looking a bit overweight? You know, why is, Mm, you know, it was just, it was superb. So that was the first thing that we needed to work on and that was that was done. The second thing, I guess, was to um, observe. I read a book called The First 90 Days, um, which talks about what you should do in a when you join a new organisation. Um, and so I observed a, fair, uh, observed a fair bit in that first 90 days, but you don't have that long in an AFL, no. uh, in a high-performance team. So um, whilst observing, I had to implement a, a strategy um, and a philosophy um, which I believe in and has been changed and moulded over years um, and and I guess see who was coming along for the ride, both from players as well as staff. Um, so that was my, my biggest thing was to try and implement some physical resilience in the playing group that they probably hadn't had um, through a variety of different reasons in the previous couple of years. Tell us, tell us what you mean by that, by physical resilience within the training group. I think, I guess one of the things that we've spoken about previously in the last series with different guests was that there's two ways to go about um, injury prevention, I think. There's probably many, but let's just simplify it and say there's two. Um, And we know that if, we now know certainly that if a team like Melbourne had their best team on the park, they're a pretty good chance of doing well. And that's the same for a lot of teams. so how can you do that? Well, you can either have a team get through pre-season and just sort of scrape through, and if someone has some niggles, you give them a rest so that they complete as many sessions as possible, um, cut those sessions so- short if someone's a bit so- sore or if the group is a bit sore, or you can try and build them up and push them through that um, that uh, those periods where they're a little bit sore and a little bit tender, a little bit fatigued, and some of the wellness scores are a bit high, to provide them with that robustness to get through. And my philosophy started off in the former, and I've now landed on the latter. So providing that physical resilience was about turning up day after day, um, training intensity at a, at a super high level, and you and I have spoken about one of the biggest influences on that uh, for me was observing people like Steven Gerrard and Luis Suarez and they verbalised that to us and said, if we don't train at this level, how do we expect to play at this level? So that that was one of the things that we implemented. It's really tempting for um, medical performance people to say, do you know what, it, in the AFL we train from November through to March and then we play games. And in January when it's a bit hot and someone just rolled their ankle slightly, it's really tempting to say, look, just have this session off. It's only January. It doesn't matter if you miss one session, but it does. Um, those little habits build up and, and it matters massively. And so they were the sort of things that we were trying to work towards. So to implement that philosophy, uh, which obviously was going to be a change, you need to firstly get your staff on board and then secondly, you need to get the players on board. Yeah. So how did you go about uh, about that? Yeah, that was um, that was pretty tough. Um, the players are often a product of their environment and um, uh, if players are allowed to take sessions off at different times, then they will um, uh, because they trust the, the people giving them advice. Um, so it, it was... It was a, a, a really um, difficult philosophy to get across because the players hadn't had that robustness in them, for, for, like I said, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and so uh, trying to implement that meant that they were put in uncomfortable situations. Uh, a lot of them had never trained two days in a row, which might seem, seem strange to our, our Premier League friends. Um, uh, but to, to implement that, 
um, w was a battle. I recall one hill session we did on a Saturday morning where, again, you've got 44 players on your list, 43, 44, and uh, I got the list of people that were to do the, that session and there was 20. So 22 or 23 of them had been ruled out for different reasons. And so I called off the session. There's just no point. It's embarrassing turning up with... And so, yeah, we, we, that was a, a, a challenge to get that through. By and large, it worked okay, and we had a pretty good first season. Um, uh, but there were certainly some healthy discussions amongst a high-performance group, which is, which is positive. I, I actually enjoy those discussions and, and hearing different philosophies. So, um, Right, so that first season uh, was an improvement on the one before. Um, uh, team finished ninth, uh, so just missed yep. playing finals. Um, it was only on percentage, I think, from me. Yeah, it was so, pretty close. But yeah. um, they, to be fair, I think it's fair to say they were a fair bit off, uh, you yep. know, top spot, you know, and and uh, for sure. and so on. Um, and it was also the first year of, of COVID and uh, a lot of disruption. And uh, one of the things that happened, uh, you know, probably halfway through the season or, you know, early on the season initially and then, then got worse, was that uh, the season was disrupted um, and uh, there were significant reductions in costs. And one of the things that was cut severely was what they call a soft cap, which is the amount of money that clubs are allowed to pay their staff. So be it coaching, high performance, medical, physio, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, your budget for your staff was cut by about a third. And you had to do something about that. Uh, you had to get rid of uh, a significant number of staff. Yep. Um, that couldn't have been easy. It was brutal, Doc. It was, um, within Australia, a lot of, noise was made about um, coaching pay cuts because coaches have a very uh, powerful union and there's a lot of noise made about players' pay cuts. Um, no noise at all was made about uh, fitness medical performance analyst staff, none. And it really upset me and we had no voice, we had no y union or anything like that to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, we're, we're in charge of player welfare and yet so um, I had to, I guess, let go two staff members, which was really hard because they were super people, firstly, and super practitioners in Daniel Cross and Kane Johns. And, um, yeah, they were um, a really important parts of the team. But obviously we, we were told you have to make these cuts. Um, so that, that was really hard. Um, and then everybody else had to take varying degrees of pay cut. Uh, some up to 70% and some 20%, depending on where your starting salary was, I guess, and, and mm. what everybody was prepared to do. So it was a tough time. And and just on that, we we were super confident going into last season. We had a great pre-season. You know, availability was strong. Um, and we thought we were going to take the season by, by storm. Um, and, uh, and we got one game in and then they cut the season um, and just suspended it and said, everybody go home for for eight weeks, nine weeks, I think it was. So that sort of levelled the playing field in our mm. in our way of thinking because we thought our pre-season might have given us a... So um, that, that was tough to take from a performance point of view, but more importantly, from a personal point of view, uh, having built a pretty good relationship with some of these staff, um, having to... And then the season started and we got another three or four games in and, and we were okay. I think we were two and two or three and three or whatever it was. And uh, we got told on a Friday, there's a chance after we play Richmond at the MCG, we might have to go to Sydney on the Monday or Tuesday to avoid sort of a COVID outbreak in Melbourne. And then they said the day before we were due to play Richmond at the MCG, uh, you're then going to Sydney um, straight after the game. So it was this very weird, surreal scenario of people turning up for a game of footy with golf clubs, family members, <laughs> kids, all those sorts of things, ready to load onto a plane straight after the game to try and escape COVID, get out of Melbourne as quickly as possible uh, to go into a hub um, in Sydney. And so we went to Sydney for two weeks. And then, of course, we were told, no, 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 you need to... So. My job then became, 
a lot different. You know, I was trying to source AFL grounds in Sydney for us to train on, and as you know, it's yeah, not particularly not big up there. So uh, driving around Sydney because that's where I'm from, finding different grounds and contacting contacts and things like that. And then we went up to uh, Queensland. So you couldn't stay in Sydney or, or come back to Melbourne. No. Nope. So you, Melbourne, and a number of other clubs basically went to Queensland initially temporarily, but in the end permanently for the rest of the season for about eight weeks, was it? Or it was, uh, it was longer than that. I think yeah. it was uh, about 105 days or something right. like that. Okay. So it was a long yeah. time. 15 weeks, something like that. And, and, and on that, the, the staff um, had a choice mm. to go or not to go. And we had um, uh, a head doctor and a head physio who, for family reasons and, and very uh, rational reasons, said, no, we, we, we don't want to go. Um, and so we were left with um, an assistant doctor in, in Laura and, uh, and two physios who, who were, you know, experienced, but not the head physio, um, plus... Uh, we then recruited another physio who'd never met any of the players. It was a contact of yours uh, and, yeah. and Phil Merriman's and um, then went up to um, – we split the group up and 30 players left early and sort of 15 stayed behind and those 15 felt – because we thought we were only going to go up for two weeks and ended up being longer. As soon as it ended up being longer, we then brought those other players and staff up and – but we were still without for 100 days without a head doctor and a head physio who were, uh, you know, diagnosing and and influencing and from from back in Melbourne, which was a tough situation for yeah, everybody yeah. because they were effectively in charge of that side of things and trying to do it from a distance, which, yeah. you know, was really hard. So it, it was, I don't think, I think on the negative side, people don't realise how hard that was on performance staff and, of course, players and coaches, but they had a voice we didn't. Um, yep. But what it did do is it brought the team together. I, I firmly believe that that hub had a, has had a massive influence on what has happened this year because it brought the team and the staff really, really closely together. Um, we had to play a lot of back-to-back games, so games in four days and three days break and four days break, and um, which is very unusual for AFL, um, and it gave the players belief that they could they could do that and back up and and and... I think it provided them with a whole lot of mental and physical resilience that they might not otherwise have gotten. So at the end of last season, end of the 2020 season, um, you're back in Melbourne. You've had a, a, a slightly disappointing year, probably, I think sure. it's fair to say. Yep. Uh, yep. Melbourne fans and a lot of people are calling for blood. They want the coach's uh, head on, on yeah. the plate. And there was a lot of talk about uh, what would happen to the coach and they did a big review of the club and uh, and so on. And uh, to their eternal credit, they uh, they maintained faith in the uh, in the coach. But um, there were other changes made in in personnel, both on the coaching and high performance uh, side. Um, basically, I guess to it would be fair to say to to align more fully with your philosophy. Yeah, I think the um, the upshot of that season away was that the club felt that. Uh, Despite some public um, sort of questioning of the senior coach, um, they wanted to to back the senior coach, which was fantastic, even after the review. And um, the senior coach uh, had a philosophy of training along with myself. And so uh, along with that um, philosophy, as well as the fact that um, staff were asked to take a permanent pay cut because there was no crowds, there was less games, yep. um, and some staff weren't willing to do that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that provided an opportunity to bring people in where that philosophy could be stated from the outset, and obviously the, the salary situation could be stated from the outset. Yep. So the combination of those two things um, allowed us to, to, to bring some people in, I guess, that that we're aware of that's that what was going to happen. Um, so, yeah, it was a really tough time for everybody, yeah. um, uh, particularly the coach. Like, he was under the most pressure out of yeah. out of all of us because yeah. everybody wanted to go. hot favourite of the first coach to be sacked. Literally, you couldn't, you couldn't put any money on him because you wouldn't get anything <laughs> back that he would be sacked. Yeah, yeah. So what did, what did you think 
was required to take the next step, you know, from an improvement, but still ultimately fair way off the pace yep. to, you know, to what eventually happened? Um, I, I thought we're on the right path. I really did. And I, I thought um, another pre-season, if we got a good run at it and and the, the players were showing enough um, physical resilience, we had a great year injury-wise in that first year. You know, it wasn't fantastic year, but it was a good year. Um, we unfortunately lost Phil Merriman. He got he got uh, poached by Fremantle, um, and he's a fantastic operator. So um, we had to replace Phil, and then we had to replace um, Joel, who was the senior physio, and Z, who was the senior doctor, who both decided that, that they didn't want to be part of it. So um, uh, what we thought, and you were part of this process, Brookie, which I'm eternally grateful, is we would try and uh, bring people to the club who had that level of seniority, that uh, similar to the guys that departed, as well as um, uh, had the philosophy, the real sort of, uh, we'll call it a aggressive performance philosophy, for want of a better phrase, um, and we're able to do that. Um, uh, Laura got the the um, the senior role, uh, which was fantastic. I think having so you there, head to, doctor, head yep. doctor um, you there to help was was fantastic. We brought in uh, Jacob to help uh, Laura uh, as a, as assistant doctor, mm. and then we brought in Daniel James from Carlton, who uh, numerous people had recommended um, to us as head physio, mm. and we brought in Selwyn Griffiths from Brisbane. Um, to replace Phil as, as head of strength and conditioning. So um, I think those appointments were... Great people and yeah, great good, practitioners. Uh, importantly, as as we've always said, number one, they were really good people. Yep. And number two, they were good practitioners. And it is in that order. Yep. It has to be that order. You can't have too many good people around a No, club, yeah. no, exactly. So and sort of the atmosphere in the, you know, in the high-performance group that I was, you know, as I said, marginally part of... Uh, was completely different, I thought, and, and very positive and very friendly and, and very, you know, passionate and uh, all those sort of things. It was just a, a wonderful group to be part of. Yeah, they, they, look, um, there are a number of things against us, I guess. You know, we, we had to permanently relocate our training to Casey, which for those in Melbourne, uh, uh, those outside of Melbourne don't understand how far away that is, so players had to drive... An hour's drive. A, an hour and, city, an yeah. hour and a half, um, Yep. Whereas their normal training facility is right in the heart of Melbourne, which was a, mm. a very pleasant 30-minute walk for me, <laughs> um, as opposed to an hour there, an hour and a half back. So, and the facilities were of a substandard, you know, VFL mm. standard. So um, they weren't AFL facilities. So there are a number of things that we had to contend with, and for that staff to embrace that um, and um, have a really positive attitude. You know, guys like David Watts and David Regan, who we've mentioned previously in, as head of strength and head of sports science, Beck, the dietitian, um, we all just decide, okay, well, this is what it is. Let's embrace it. And uh, from, again, from day one, there was a slight, a few, a few changes to the coaching group, but everybody pointed in the right direction. Everybody got together down in, um, down in Sorrento and came up with the philosophy from a coaching and performance point of view that was relayed to the players. The players then met by themselves, completely separate to us, and decided that they were going to embrace everything and uh, use the lessons that they learnt last year to, or the previous year to, to go forward. And um, I know that uh, this is a high-performance po podcast, so we're t focusing on that. Um, but honestly, the, the players and the coaches deserve the the bulk of the credit as they they've gotten you know um, because what they're able to to do and and be unwavering and it particularly the leaders of the club was extraordinary because obviously you know you you increase the the workload even more and and push them pretty hard yep and uh, and they needed to I guess embrace that uh, that philosophy and and as you said to their credit they uh, they did that because uh, normally you know there'd be a bit of Push back against the sort of workloads that were required that you required from them, but also I think the credit to yourself in that you managed to bring those players along for the ride and and make them realise that uh, you know they would reap the rewards if they if they did the work. And certainly players have said to me, "We've never trained that. I've never trained that hard. You know, we've, normally I would uh, never train if I was sore." And and the 
two days in a row and, and you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. And the and the killer hill sessions on a, on a Saturday morning uh, <laughs> yeah. during pre-season and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think when the players uh, knew that we were there for them and that we all believed in this philosophy and they knew it was the same for Max Gorn as it was for whoever else, yep. and when Max prides himself, uh, I recall a week before we left for the final series in Perth, he was like, hey, I've done 100%. Is there anybody else? There's only two players who've done every single training and gym session that we've done all year, and it was Max Gorn and Bally Fritz. And he was sitting in front of my desk saying, and I said, no, I think you've done 99% because he missed one session for a funeral. He turned up at 6 a.m. that morning with myself and Selwyn to do a session and then go to the funeral, and I'd sort of scored that session differently. And he was like, no, 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 I did that session. I did the session. <laughs> I turned up at 6 a.m. for a few. And yeah. So when you, you're senior captain and arguably your most influential player um, has that philosophy, it's easy to to spread it through the rest of the club. So, um, yeah, it, it was uh, it was really well embraced by the staff and that makes it also easy easy to sell to the players that this is in, in their best interests uh, and we're doing it for them. And during pre-season, you know, when did you sort of start to feel, hey, look, we really could have something special here. Is it, is it as early as the pre-season or, or was it wait when you're into the season? Yeah, it was, um, I was really nervous going into the first couple of games, first game against Freo and I was mainly nervous for Goody because I know he's a really, really, really good coach um, and he is, he, some coaches are really good coaches but they are um, in it a bit for themselves as well as the players. Mm. There's that dual motivation. He has no selfishness whatsoever. He has no... So I really wanted us to do well for him. Um, uh, obviously, I had some stuff going on at home where I knew that potentially I might have to um, change states to be closer to my kids because all the borders were shut and things like that. And so I wanted to experience some success as well. Mm, yeah. um, but I, I wanted... It, so I was really nervous. Um, uh, I reckon after about three or four rounds, I thought, no, we're, we're okay here. Um, I'm seeing some really good signs amongst the playing group, some really good signs both from a fitness point of view but also from an attitudinal point of view with the playing group. Um, so, yeah, I reckon about three or four rounds in. I, we won our first nine, I think. Mm, um, yeah. But after about three rounds, I thought, no, we'll be okay here. So fitness-wise, I mean, you do a lot of measuring and a lot of uh, monitoring. I mean, did you observe significant improvements from from the, pre the previous season? Um, it was hard to compare because the rules were a bit different uh, mm. the previous season. But what I did observe was the repeated, repeat uh, explosive action ability of some of our key players. So... Um, uh, some of our key players are not what you would call aerobic runners and very different to, say, the team that I, that I worked with at Port Adelaide in that they had a lot of outstanding, you know, runners. Mm. Um, the Melbourne team is a bit different. Well, let's talk about specific. I mean, you know, Christian Petrarca is, is one who I think, to, you know, had always been incredibly talented, but probably I think, you know, most Melbourne supporters would have been a bit frustrated in that he seemed to, you know dominate a game for 10 minutes and then he'd sort of tend to disappear and it was that lack of repeatability and so on and uh, um, so how, you know how did you address that or, or was that something specifically that he spoke to you about or yeah um, Chuck um, oh, he's one of the best athletes I've worked with and uh, to his credit he we met actually in London um, mm -hmm. he was over there with Christian Salem and Clayton Oliver on a end of season trip and I was still there and we we all had dinner together, and and he outlined what he wanted to do, and um, he was the motivator behind it. I, I I guess I just tried to help along and guide him in the right direction. And he's the type of player who would message you at any time at night and say, "I've just read about infrared saunas. What should I do?" Or, "I'm feeling a bit flat. Have you got anything to help me out?" And um, 
so we worked really closely, but the best thing that he did was he took pride last pre-season in every training session. I'd told him about, you know, certain players that I'd work with. And so after almost every training session, he'd come to me and say, was I best on today or was I close to best on? And these were sessions in November when he wasn't actually supposed to be there. It was just the kids that were supposed to be there, but he'd turn up anyway and say, was I best on? And so that allowed him to have a great season last season and be All-Australian and everything. And then this season he took it to another level and he was almost disappointed with his pre-season this pre-season because he didn't stand out as much because other players had come along for the ride, had seen what he did last season and, and he was able to consciously or otherwise bring them along. Mm. So what, from a physical point of view, what we're never going to turn Christian Petrarca into an Ed Langdon, into an endurance running machine. But his strength is his explosiveness. And what we tried to do as a department was allow him to show that more often. So be as explosive in the first quarter as he is in the last quarter. And so we didn't run him long running to turn him into somebody that he isn't. We kept him short running, um, and but just repeated it a lot. And hopefully, uh, and what's he did a superb gym session in the combination of Phil last year and Selwyn this year. Um, uh, helped helped with that to make sure that he was strong enough and robust enough to repeat that and he was able to do that all season. So what you're saying really is that every player is different Yes. and they need to be managed differently from a fitness point of view, from a training point of view. Yep. Obviously there's a team, you know, you train as a team yep. but within that you've got to, uh, got to individualise. Yeah, so if, if I showed you Christian Petrarca's running sessions uh, a running in a game, uh, in games where he's got three Brownlow votes and been voted by the best on the ground, you might think, eh, that's not that special. It's not like a, like I said, Ed Langdon or an Alex Neil Bullen or some of these players. Um, but what he does do is is his stuff, his explosive stuff, really, really well. He's, uh, if you like, in a phone box, work really, really well. And what we tried to do is make him do it more often. So our pre-season running for Christian more or less reflected that. Of course, he has to do some uh, repeatability stuff, but that was to enable him to be explosive as often as possible. Mm -hmm. um, Alex Neil Bullen was doing different running than what Petrarca was because that's what's required in a game. Ed Langdon was doing different running. Um, and you would judge Ed based on... You know, he's running. Um, yeah, his numbers were incredible. The, it, the, the amount of kilometres and high-speed running he did in the game. Is, is that as good as you've come across? Uh, I haven't. Uh, Brad Ebert was very good. Yep. But I think Ed's got him covered. Um, you know, for those um, listening overseas, it's, um, he'd often have games where he's 15, 16 kilometres. Uh, but the remarkable part is he would do sort of three and a half thousand high-speed meters <laughs> and then combine that with about six seven hundred meters sprint in some games which is just it blows just my off mind the, off the chart and he, he would play 120 minutes never come off uh, or rarely come off um and there's un or, you know there's 90 yeah. rotations so most players run off to get a break but i would joke with him in the warm-up saying i'll see you in three hours <laughs> and um yeah literally wouldn't see him and it was that classic moment every melbourne supporter would remember in the last quarter where he uh he uh, started a, well, got the ball in the defensive fifty, yep. and gave it off and, and finished up marking it in the in the attacking fifty and, and kicking a goal. Kicking a goal, know, and, yeah. And, uh, and then having yeah. the composure to, you know, after Just, sprinting one hundred and forty <laughs> meters, <laughs> incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very rarely see that. Uh, yeah, remarkable. exactly. He was a machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah very impressive. Yeah. So yeah, we we tried to cater for those differences and and it's not. I mean, we didn't have uh, as we reflected on before. You don't have the staff to say, uh, Christian, you're doing this running session under my supervision and Ed, you're doing that. So you do have to group them. So let's not pretend yeah. that everyone's doing their own specific yeah, session. Sure. But um, uh, where possible, we catered for each of their individual um, needs. And, and I think that's one of the really big lessons that, that we took is that each position required a different running ability mm -hmm. and therefore you try and tailor your training to that rather than necessarily he needs to get aerobically fitter, so therefore he'll do MAS. It's what does he do in a game? Let's try and replicate and overload that appropriately in our training. Mm. 
So there's, I guess there's two elements to, to the training side of it. One is the performance side of it, and one is the injury prevention side yep. of it. Obviously, a lot of overlap in the, in the two. And, and we've talked a little bit about the performance side of it and, and how, how successful that was. I have to say, I don't think there's ever been a season in AFL football where a club had uh, less injuries than, uh, than Melbourne had uh, this year. Um, there are a few stats that have come out. I think uh, one of the things that Champion Data does is, is put a, uh, a cost of injury. So they, they talk about injuries in your main players. And, uh, and Melbourne, you know, were so far below everyone else uh, in the number of uh, uh, the amount of injury cost. Um, I, I'm also told that it's the first time in VFL, AFL history that a club's had nine players play every game. So all 25 games. And... Among those nine uh, were four of the five All-Australians, so um, Gorn, Petrarca, Oliver and Lever. Um, and then of the, I think of the seven All-Australian nominations, uh, so those, those four plus um, May, Fritch and Salem, they missed a total of four games between the seven of them. And uh, when you have your best players out there, I think of our... Melbourne's 14, who I would regard as Melbourne's 14 best players, I think 12 of them played 23 games or more 25, out, of, yeah. out of 25. And uh, uh, the others played a significant number too. So it's a, hu- it's a huge, uh, I guess, step towards success is having your best players out there. What did uh, you do other than that sort of hard training and, and I guess – you know, you would probably argue that that's a major factor of, of getting physical resilience. Yep. What else was there that uh, that you felt contributed to that? And obviously there's some luck. You know, I mean, yeah, we all yeah, know yeah, this. Yeah. As I always say, when you have a good run, you say it's good management. When you have a bad run, it's bad luck. But, yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> the reality is it's a combination of the two yeah. and luck played a role. That you, you know, there are, act, there are injuries that you can't, you know, concussions and fractured ribs and fractures and, and you know, all sorts of things that you yeah. can't really control. But... Soft tissue injury-wise, there were virtually, I think you had one hamstring, uh, no quads. I mean, just you know, your soft tissue injury absence per week, you know, was was like one, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Just unheard of, really, in the, uh, in the list. And I think it culminated, obviously, in grand final week where you took your whole squad of 85, uh, 45 players to Perth. And on the Wednesday, the main training before the grand final, all 45 players trained Yep. And apart from the three who were in rehab from their new reconstructions, the other 42 were all available for selection in theory uh, yes. uh, in the grand final. Again, yeah. you know, totally unheard of. In a way, you should have won it, really. Uh, well, <laughs> not, I, that, <clears throat> not that easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, um, yes, it was a good run with injuries, and uh, you're right in saying it was luck, and you played your part because you were involved um, being the uh, oldish wise head and calm head, but I, I recall, Brookie, in pre-season, we had three hamstring, uh, yep. maybe Question. even more, it might have been four, um, in a in a two-week period. Mm. Questions um, were being asked. Yeah, uh, people yeah. And this said was, to me, you know, what's going on? And yeah, so. this was <clears> early February, um, and they were only sort of six, seven-day um, hamstrings, but they were there, and they were good players. And um, so w- we felt... Under pressure as a as a performance mm. group, and and we went back and audited ourselves as every performance team does, and said, no, we, we think we're doing the right things um, from a from a hamstring and a general soft tissue point of view, um, and and we sort of stayed the course and 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 got our results. So what did what did we do? I think there's firstly that physical resilience that we spoke about. Preseason was bloody hard, and. Um, as a general philosophy, make pre-season hard, in-season easy. Um, and that's a general philosophy. Um, secondly, uh, the philosophy, for example, when every player is, virtually every player is in the car for, on average, an hour to get to the game. And some of these players are 200 plus centimetres to get to training, training. sorry, mm-hmm. three or four times a week. Um, we came up with a philosophy and and credit the other staff, not me, and David Regan, Selwyn, David Watts, um, and and Daniel James, Brent Eccleston, in coming up with a, I guess, an injury prevention circuit that they did before the warm-up 
and before training. And that covered off on a lot of, um, you know, what might be issues with big players, big people spending a lot of time in the car. Um, uh, so when you say an injury prevention circuit, what, what sort of things did that involve? Yeah, I guess um, uh, we would, so the players would have about 30 minutes to prepare pre-training. Uh, we'd have a team meeting, 30 minutes to prepare pre-training, and then they would go in the gym and Watsi and then and then Riggs after that would take them through, uh, uh, I guess you'd just call a general mobility circuit. And, um, you know, I'm not at the club anymore, so I don't want to give away exactly no, no, what sure. they were doing, but um, just a general mobility circuit, which is probably not unusual for... But where it becomes a bit different philosophically is we knew it could be an issue, right? but we didn't tell the players, this is why they're doing it, because we don't want the players to think, oh, well, we're in the car. And, yeah. You know, they know they're in the car. Um, so we just said this is a, an activation. And what we gave them back is the warm-ups after that, every time for our warm-ups pre-training, eight, nine minutes. Mm. That's it. Much you know, less than most people. Yeah, much less than most because they've minutes, already yeah. done that previous yeah. activation. Mm. And coaches love it. Um, players love it because they're not listening to us <laughs> you know, they just want to train. And this is yeah. prior to doing sessions upwards of 12, 13, 14 kilometres and, you know, three-hour sessions. We're, sessions. we're warming them up, officially warming them up for eight, nine minutes. Mm. So um, it it was part of an overall philosophy to prepare them based on mm. some of the um, context um, mm. that, that, were, that we were given. Um, and then um, we tried to embrace that physical nature of training. And that was a really important thing all the way through. So um, we were playing a contest brand of footy that most commentators said was boring um, because we weren't scoring many goals, but we weren't conceding many goals. And if you look at the history of finals, other than this year, <laughs> that's, the, that's the way that finals go. So we were doing that from the start. And in order to do that well, the coaches said to us, the performance staff, we are going to do heavy physical contact as part of training. That's what we're going to do. And Goody said many times, I don't care if we get injuries, this is what we're going to do. And that took a weight off us mm. because a lot of those missed games that you spoke about earlier, I think it, it's something like 70% of our uh, injuries were as the result of contact in training. Mm. And uh, we just had to accept that. We had dislocated fingers, broken jaws, <laughs> uh, syndesmosis, ankles, all yeah. from contact in training. Mm. And a lot of other coaches might say, well, you know what, we'll just back off mm. that. Yep. Whereas Goody went hard at it and we went hard at it as a, as a team. And even in those week off leading to, you know, the prelim final and the final uh, where... Most of the experts were saying that uh, freshening the team up and and backing off might have a negative effect on our ability to perform mm. under under pressure. And in the grand final and a prelim final, um, we went harder, and even even to the point where we were a bit uncomfortable in coaches' meetings. Uh, you know, Goody saying, "No, no, no, we we're doing this," and that's what that's what we're going to do. You know, mm. that was actually going to be my next question was to that end of season where you basically played one game in, in four weeks um, because uh, for those not familiar with, with the AFL among our listeners you, the uh, the season finished you then played a, a, a final because you won that you then had a week off so there was two weeks till the next final you won that and then had another two weeks off till uh, till the, the grand final so in the space you know you've had sort of four weeks really where you played uh, played one game and and a lot of the, the experts were saying well, that was you know, that was their big concern about Melbourne going into the grand final. But as you say, you overcame that by training even harder than, than usual. Yeah, I guess if you compare us to the Bulldogs, the Bulldogs had to travel a bit, but they were playing regular mm. cutthroat games, elimination games. And then they had, so they played three in a row and then had a week off to play the grand final. And if you were designing a preparation for a grand final, it would probably look something like that yeah. from a game point of view, perhaps not from a travel point of view. Um, we were stuck in Perth under hotel quarantine um, for the first two weeks of that, uh, where there was literally a fence around the hotel, so we couldn't escape other than to, to train. 
Um, and we played, uh, as you say, uh, a game, weekend off, another game, two weeks off grand final. So leading into the grand final, um, I'd be walking along the beach because we were out and active in the community and I'd get up at six and go for a walk or run along the beach and listen to the experts in, in Melbourne and I started a second guess, you know, <laughs> the, the philosophy because what we did was in those weekends off, we had full match sim. Um, so the players were to hit their match loads and I would literally pull players out once they hit their, their game loads so that we can be assured that that rhythm of physical exposure kept going. So when you're talking about game loads, you're talking about amount of running, high yes. speed running, um, acceleration, acceleration, decelerations, high speed running, sprint running. Yeah, I wasn't perfect, but uh, yep. more or less their game. I'm not going to give Ed Langdon, you know, another <laughs> 700 metres of sprinting, but uh, more or less their game load. That was our philosophy as a, mm. as a team, as a, as a department, as a coaching department. And that came with risks. You know, associated with it. Um, you know, uh, imagine if Charlie one of your, Spargo. Imagine if one of your key players had done a hamstring the week before the grand. You know, as a result of this yeah. huge load. I mean, you you must have been nervous about that. Oh, very, really, really nervous. And but um, when you have the support of the senior coach, yep. then that all that pressure is taken off. It's just uh, absorbed. And even though, and and I remember in the last um, the training session leading into the grand final, we're at Optus Oval, um, you know, it's pretty intense. It was 33 degrees, it was hot, <laughs> um, and the coaches were doing their contact drill, and it is literally where players line up, one has the ball, one doesn't, and one runs as hard as they can at the other person, and and that's what you do. And uh, Goody said to me, uh, make sure the doctor and the physio aren't anywhere in the area. I don't want the players <laughs> to get nervous. We are going at it. I'm going to make sure they're going at it. And so myself, the doc and the physio stood a very respectable sort of 60 <laughs> metres away. Um, Fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, because normally crossed. you might stand a bit closer in case uh, something happens yeah, in one of those sessions. Uh, so, no, um, so yeah, we, we kept going at that and that was, yeah. a, that was certainly high risk, high reward as it turned out. Okay, look, we, we, we could talk for hours, but I want to talk about the grand final because, uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, Melbourne fans would love to talk about the grand final. But, a again, just to paint the picture very briefly, I mean, uh, Melbourne started off very well, had a good first quarter, had a poor second quarter, and were really struggling. Halfway through the third quarter, 19 points down, couldn't get hold of the ball, really looked in, in big trouble. The Bulldogs were, were right on top, and really, you know, anyone who was watching would say, look, you know, they probably only need another goal or two and you and that's it's all over. And then in you know, almost in an instant, everything turned 180 degrees. And suddenly Melbourne uh, snagged a couple of goals for against the run of play. And then from then on, it was just one-way traffic and, and scored, I think, was it 16 of the last 17 goals? Something like that. Quite yeah, unheard 100, of. 100 points to seven. Yeah. I mean, it was the most one-sided, you know, quarter in a... In a and a half or a quarter and a third of, of football you'd, you'd ever see in, in a grand final from a team that looked down and out. Now, I must admit, I've gone back and looked at that third quarter about eight times on the replay <laughs> to try and understand, you know, what happened. How can a game turn 180 degrees instantly? And to be honest, there's no, you know, people talk about there was this Viney pressure and there was Jackson in the ruck and all the sort of, but none of them really explain it. Tell us the Burgess oh, explanation. Um, uh, I guess to understand, my role in in games is I have the headphones on, the coaches are sitting upstairs, um, the head coach is sitting next to me or standing next to me, yep. um, and the coaches are upstairs and I'm listening into their conversations, yep. as well as I've got my sports scientist, Dave Regan, behind me with the GPS live, and my job is the rotation. So the coaches have entrusted me to take players off and on according to either tactics or physical metrics. They have rules which I abide by. So if Darren Burgess comes off, Peter Bruckner takes his position and, you know, and there's yeah. adjustments to make. Position-wise, so, yeah. So there's, there's obviously associated pressure with that role. So I don't get to watch a lot of it. So yeah. I, And it's a good thing in games like grand finals because you're so process-oriented that... So... Um, uh, what happened is probably one of those um, combination of things that don't 
happen very often, but when you get all of them in a perfect storm, it resulted in four goals in a minute and a half, and that just broke the back of, of the opposition. So in that time, um, the Bulldogs kicked another goal. I think one of their players, the smallest player in the in the field, sort of flung around our captain and then stood over him, which I think upset a few of our players, certainly did on the bench. Um, and then uh, one of our most athletic players, the absolute freak in Luke Jackson, came on into the ruck fresh uh, as part of a rotation. So I'm going to mm. claim credit for that. Yep. Um, and uh, was up against a ruckman who uh, had only played two games in 15 weeks and was 34 years old and yeah, very tire. strong, yep. but not necessarily athletic. And our three best midfielders had all had various breaks and had then gone into the midfield really, really fresh. Um, so there was this perfect combination of events for us. Um, our player, Max Gorn, our captain, who we've mentioned, who kicked six or five goals five, the previous six, yeah, five, yeah, five, two yeah. weeks and was the, the best, most dominant ruck display in probably the history of the game uh, in big games two weeks earlier, was sitting, came off as part of a normal rotation and just said, uh, he actually called it, he said, Jacko is going to dominate the next five minutes. Um, when you put me back on, Burjo, put me forward because he's going to kill him. And sure enough, the next five minutes was um, just a perfect storm of events where our players were a bit fresher than theirs at that particular moment. And as those who know AFL know, in the centre bounce gives you best opportunity to get one-on-ones in the mm. in the forward line and, and that's what we're able to do. And most of the goals were kicked by midfielders, not even forwards, and mm. um, because we had that period of dominance that we capitalised on. I mean, it, it's a simplest, simplistic thing to say, but, I mean, fitness plays an enormous role. And, and, you know, I think Melbourne all season finished games very well. They were the best third-quarter team. I think they were the best fourth-quarter team. I mean, a number of times we see Melbourne seem to be, you know, uh, from the, that la the Brisbane game, the, the last game against Geelong, they were gone at halftime, looked completely out of the game and came home right over the top. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, great credit to you and your, your team that, uh, you know, they were able to do that. And I'm sure that was a factor in there because I think in, in you know, in, in any sort of competition, you know, it's a matter of when everyone's going 100%, you know, it's, it's usually pretty, pretty even, you know, and it's, and it's how long you can maintain that intensity without dropping off on how much you drop off. And sure. I, my theory, I guess, is that the Bulldogs just dropped off a little bit in their intensity, which then all of a sudden enables the opposition to have a bit more space, but not as much pressure and so on. And whereas Melbourne didn't seem to to drop off. And then once you get a bit of momentum back, of yeah, course, you then yeah. seem to be yeah, full yeah. of running and, yeah. and so on. Is that, I mean, well, is that a reasonable firstly, sort of theory? It, Bulldogs are an incredible, were an incredible first half team. So they often blew opponents away in the first half. We saw that in the prelim. Yeah. And so we knew at half time, and I, I don't say much at half time, it's not my job, it's a coach's job, but often when I know that, that's when I'm going out on the field for the re-warm-up, I'm telling the players, understand that you are the best second-half team in the competition and you're up mm -hmm. against a team that on the over the last eight weeks hadn't been great because of all the travel that they'd done and all the mm. quarantine that they'd had to live through. So the players knew that, for starters. So you, you reinforced that at the yeah, start in, of the Yeah, in the, the, yeah. the second-half warm-up, I'm yelling at them, because mm -hmm. there's a big crowd and all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. And I'm yelling, saying, you're the best second-half team. No mm -hmm. one can go. You know, those sorts of things. And so the, the players knew that. So that plays a factor in their mindset, hopefully, in their belief. Mm. Um, and then it only takes, particularly in AFL, two or three players around the ball to be a little bit off and two or three players to be a little bit more fresh. And you get that momentum. Mm. And as you say, when you have that momentum, it appears as though you're running on top of the ground. And, and once you get sort of 30... 35 points down in a grand final in the last quarter, it's human nature to say, well, we're, you know, we're not much of a chance. So mm. we looked great in that last quarter because we were kicking all our goals and running over the top. And, and there might be a fitness element. Obviously, I'm going to hope that there is, um, <laughs> but there's certainly a belief element yeah, sure. in, in that time. So, um, yeah, so that, that's probably what it was, um, a combination of belief, perfect storm of events on the field and, um, and a couple of players who really just, 
were, were incredibly dominant. Speaking of belief, I, I just want to, to finish, you know, I just want to go back to you and, and, and obviously, you know, as you mentioned at the start, you, you came off a, a disappointing end to your time at Arsenal and um, which must have affected your self-confidence, self-belief and so on. How, how did you sort of go about restoring, I guess, uh, your self-belief and, uh, and ability to perform your role? Um, yeah, it did. It honestly did. It rattled me um, uh, in a number of different ways, I guess. Um, but um, firstly, what it what it re-emphasised more than anything, the transition from Arsenal into the D's was the value of good people and a team pointing in the same direction. It sounds really simple, <laughs> um, yep. but you and I both know that that's not always the case. Uh, when people put self-interest before the team, it's, it can have disastrous consequences and um, players see that and know that and, um, yeah, don't buy into it. And unfortunately, in a lot of the more salubrious, uh, more, more um, um, sexy overseas leagues, it, it can be the case where um, self-interest in staff to stay there overtakes things. Mm. Um, so that was was made so clear um, through employing good people at the Ds um, and point them in the in the same direction as the coach and and you get a good result. Um, I, I guess for myself, um, it was the the technical stuff I thought was okay because the injury rates, um, at Arsenal and our performances, our physical performances were um, outstanding, but it was the management and leadership that sort of shook me a little bit. So I guess the technical stuff I always felt okay with mm -hmm. as long as I, um, you know, and we had you know, Phil Merriman and really good people around to help with the technical side of things, but it was more that management. And I reckon the three or four months off I had after Arsenal really uh, helped a lot. Um, uh, I read a lot of books. I spoke to a lot of people. I deliberately travelled around a little bit to to try and um, learn from any mistakes that I might have made and and or reinforce any beliefs. So it was probably more the leadership management side of things that um, I needed some um, help with, and and whether that was affirm certain things or or change certain things. And so yeah, it was just really nice to. Um, to go to work each day with a group of people that wanted to be there, wanted the same thing and didn't really care who got any sort of credit, wanted to defer it all to the coaches and players and that's how it should be. Mm. And this this past season, I mean, you've obviously had, you've had a difficult family situation, you know, children are in Adelaide, you've been torn between uh, them and so on. How, how do you sort of uh, manage, you know, obviously pressure outside your job and then you come into a highly pressured hmm. you know demanding job uh you know how do you sort of balance those and switch off from one to the other and so on i mean that that must have been a very challenging year for you yeah it was uh it's been the the, the toughest two years personally um having my kids in a different state and the borders closed um has been brutal um so uh, that's been tough. The pressure of the job, um, uh, I recall having many conversations with you over the years about if you get your processes right, it'll take care of itself. And I really feel like uh, everybody got their processes right. Um, so um, I didn't have too many concerns and perhaps because I've seen a lot because I'm 47, I'm not young anymore. Um, I can be a bit calmer on the bench and um, uh, during the heat of battle and during tough decisions to be made, I can be a bit calmer because I've been around a little bit perhaps. Um, great, superb help of Martha, my partner at home. That's That's been, um, she's been a massive influence. Um, and yeah, I just think that um, when you put things in perspective and you do the preparation work, um, it takes the pressure off because um, you know that if things do go wrong, it's it's probably not the prep or the process or the people. It might be bad luck or or something like that. So I think 
you know, that old adage, fail to prepare, prepare to fail, as long as the process is right, that gives me a lot of comfort in, to be able to, to know that we've given the players and the coaches the best chance. Mm. I think that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, you've made uh, many, many thousands of, uh, of Demons fans <laughs> <laughs> very happy and, and, you know, I don't think you should underplay your contribution to their uh, their success over this uh, this past uh, season. Is there a... People have been trying for 57 years to do what uh, <laughs> what you did. So congratulations. I mean, I think you should feel very proud of what you've achieved. And uh, um, obviously, you know, we, you know, we've been friends for for a long time. But it, you know, I, I, leaving that aside, I mean, it just from a professional point of view, you know, I, I, I think you did an amazing job putting uh, putting everything together for for Melbourne this year. And um, you know, certainly uh, look forward to uh, watching what happens in the future. You're off to uh, you're off to Adelaide. Yeah, off to, to the Crows for a new uh, adventure, a new challenge. Um, mm. uh, obviously, my kids are over there, so yep. uh, looking forward to uh, re-engaging with them more um, than, than what I've been able to do because of the, the borders being yep. being shut for, from COVID. So, new challenge, and, and hopefully I can be sitting here on this podcast uh in a few years' time, with a with a similar story, um, you never know. Well, um, I'll let Melbourne win a couple more yeah, before you do yeah. that. But <laughs> yeah, look, I, you know, I said it to sure, the you have mixed feelings about. Yeah, very much so. That wasn't part of the plan no. uh, when I signed with Melbourne. I recall saying to Josh Marnie, the football director at the time, um, "Put put ten years, put fifteen years on it. I'm not I'm not going anywhere, you know." Mm. But obviously, situations change and. And um, so I, I hope nothing but the best for the D's people and the D's club. They've been amazing for me, in particular Goody, um, and and Greg Stafford and 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 the performance staff. So, yeah, I hope they do really really well and look forward to watching them uh, succeed from a distance. Great, well, it's a good note to finish on. Go D's and and all the best for you in that in the future. But uh, you know we'll uh, we'll turn attention away from uh, from Darren Burgess from now on, and uh, we're going to have uh, as we said we've got a whole bunch of really interesting guests over the next uh, few weeks. So we'll uh, we'll look forward to that. But uh, thanks for the chat today. That'd be good, Doc. Thanks for everything. It's the emblem of the team we love.